You're listening to the Legion of Reason. All right. I guess we are now... Make sure the recorder is recording. Yes, it is. Okay, so tonight on the Region... Ah, look at that. I'm already screwed. <laughs> the Legion of Reason Diversion. Uh, Michael Cruz joins us. Chris Twyla and yours truly, the Supreme Irreverend Dr. Randy Tyson. Michael is Executive Director of Bad Science Watch. The, the mission of Bad Science Watch is to, pro- pro- to, quote, provide analysis of dubious scientific claims to Canadians, our government, and the media, promote objective critical thinking, and advocate for the enforcement and strengthening of consumer protection regulation. They've been at the forefront of the fight against recognizing homeopathic vaccines, better or infamously known as no-sodes, and the uh, claims that Wi-Fi can affect public health. Uh, welcome, Michael. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks, guys. Yeah, it's good to have you on. Now, uh, well, let's just uh, get some... Uh, uh, public service messages out of the way. You're going to be in Calgary <laughs> on February the 4th at Mount Royal University speaking. Uh, what's the topic of your uh, your lecture? Yeah, I'm going to be coming out and talking about uh, empathy and science advocacy, trying to combine, you know, emotional responses to information with rational responses or what people think are rational responses. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. It's, uh, I, I got invited out by, uh, by CFI Calgary uh, to come and address, uh, you know, in a public forum, the kind of um, questions we have about how to properly go about, or not how properly, how most effectively to go about science advocacy. So uh, I'll be using empathy as uh, as one way into that, and uh, hopefully we'll have a really interesting conversation. Yeah, so what do you mean by combining empathy and, well, I guess, scientific advocacy? Yeah, it's interesting. When we started Bad Science Watch uh, in 2012, we went through a sort of a huge, um, it was kind of branding exercise, but any kind of new organization probably should go through this uh, to sort of develop our mission and our, and our, and our values right. and everything else. And we, one of the things that we really wanted to do first of all, we were we were very focused on being a an effective organization. So rather than just doing education, which really, if anyone's ever done this kind of in, in a public way, it's really hard to gauge how effective you're being. Uh, it's almost impossible. I mean, unless you're really focused on a specific goal, um, you know, it's hard to sort of to find out if you're actually convincing people to change their minds. So we decided to, to not abandon that, but make that really kind of a secondary goal and focus on. Um, how to make change for Canadians in society. And, and that means that we have to pick targets. Uh, we have to actually decide who uh, are the most uh, effective kind of levers to push on uh, and pull on in society to make change. And one way to do that, uh, I'm going to argue on Saturday, is to sort of take an empathic approach to sort of identify uh, which what people are going to be receptive to the argument and what the basis of their disagreement is. Um, you know, I, I think that we don't talk about values enough uh, in uh, the science advocacy community. Um, we kind of accept, uh, because we all value objective truth, that there is an objectivity about the world and that, you know, our, our feelings about the world don't really matter, that the world is the way it is and science uh, is a way to understand it. Um, but in reality, you know, when we're trying to – we're dealing with the public and we're dealing with politics, values is what it's all about, you know, what, what we hold to be important. And, uh, you know, myself, um, I value objectivity. I don't think that it's possible to be completely objective. We all have inherent biases of being humans. And, uh, but, you know, it's an important goal uh, to strive towards. And science certainly is set up uh, to be kind of an iterative 
process by which to approach objective truth. So I, I think that's valuable. But there are people who don't value that. There are people who think that knowledge about the world comes through intuition or comes through some other kind of magical thinking or maybe through religion. And, uh, you know, you're not going to convince somebody who believes that intuition is a way to knowledge by hammering them with the scientific method. I think that over and over again, we've learned this lesson that, you know, just because you have the facts right doesn't mean you're going to convince people. And so at Bad Science Watch, we decided to take a different approach and focus on the people who were responsible for being rational or responsible for being, for accepting evidence and, and approaching things in a, in, a, um, in a manner that didn't just rely on, on emotions. Um, and so we focused on the government uh, primarily. Um, you know, I think we've all had the kind of experience of, you know, going home for a family holiday and getting into a fight with, you know, Aunt Sadie or Uncle Bob about creationism or the value of vitamins or, you know, that chiropractic appointment you had last week. And and uh, and I don't think that anybody has had the experience where they've managed to convince, you know, their family member that they're actually wrong and that they should adopt your position. Uh and given that, I think that it's kind of a futile effort to sort of approach consumers and uh, people who are the end users of these kind of products uh, and try to convince them because, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why. I mean, the backfire effect and a lot of psychological reasons. But ultimately, if you convince one person, and you know, one consumer to change their mind, it doesn't really have a great effect. What we should be doing instead is focusing on the people who are influencers of, of consumers. And this means the government and means organizations that are set up to regulate uh, alternative medicine practitioners uh, and, uh, you know, municipal government to make decisions about fluoride and other kind of, you know, important science advocacy topics. And so, you know, understanding the emotional stake that everyone has in this, I think, is a, a vital part of, uh, of being effective. <clears throat> along that emotional, well, along with that emotional state, why is it easier to convince and do people than it is to convince them that they're being duped and that they're going to get, you know, cavities? They're going, like, why can't we do the same thing saying these people are selling you something and you're going to get cavities? They are, they are tricking you, but I guess those are all the wrong words. It's, you're, you're, you're buying this into this so that the outcome isn't healthy and you're going to get sick. I don't understand how we can't use similar words that they use to point out the fact that the emotional part is that people are getting hurt. And that's that's my emotional side. That's why I fight against the fraud. Why can't we commence with emotion the same way? Yeah, that's a great question. And certainly that's my – I mean that's certainly my approach um, – when you're when you're confronted by an individual, like what I'm doing with my family or my friends about these issues, you have to sort of, you know, you can't, you have to stand up and, and speak truth to power. But I, I think that the effectiveness of that is what I'm questioning. I'm I'm not saying that, um, you know, standing up for those beliefs and arguing that that certain things like taking fluoride out of the water system is harmful. I'm saying that I'm not sure it's very effective. Yeah. Uh, how? how yeah. What is effective? Yeah. Well, exactly. Like, you, you can't tell people you're going to get hurt. What do you tell them? Yeah, exactly. Well, this is the thing. So I don't think that we should uh, – my tactic or our tactic at Bad Science Watch uh, generally is to not have that conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we approach the people who should have uh, – who, who approach it on a rational level. So, for example, um, in the case of no-sodes, uh, the government, uh, the Health Canada and the Natural Health Products Directorate, which is now called the Non-Prescription and Natural Health Products Directorate, when they're approving homeopathic no-sodes as part of – all the rest of the natural health products, they were really just hearing messages from 
manufacturers and yeah. interested consumer groups like uh, the natural like the Canadian Health Food Association and the sellers of these products, basically. And they, they were able to convince, um, because of this kind of siege mentality, this kind of, uh, when, you, when you own a health food store chain, you've got kind of a built-in constituency that you can, you can have you know, individual one-on-one conversations about, you know, they're going to take away your, your, your herbs and they're going to take away your vitamins, so you better sign this, this, uh, this uh, you know, compact that says we, we're going to fight on your behalf. But you know the government uh, is an is a rational body for the most part. I mean, obviously they take you know uh, they take their values from the minister who runs it. But uh, you know they have the opportunity to to step step back and go, no, wait a second. When we're making these decisions, uh, we can use a variety of tools to 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 come to a conclusion. And one of those tools is science. One of those tools is community values. One of those tools is kind of pressure from from constituents, from the politicians. And so we have an opportunity to convince them that they're. There is a public health threat, and they take that seriously. In the case of no-sodes, I don't think that they understood that there was a problem, or they didn't feel like the problem was important enough to act on um, until we made it a public issue and applied that that kind of pressure. Um, Why it doesn't work on an individual level? I mean, there's a lot of psychological and neurological evidence to show that uh, that people – I mean, the backfire effect is essential, right? Back in 2010 – I'm just going to grab this guy's name because I've not memorized it – um, researchers uh, out of uh, Dartmouth College, uh, Brian Nehan, I believe his name was, identified this kind of psychological phenomenon where, you, where if you people had already made up their minds about a subject, the minute you introduced contrary, well, you know, what we would call compelling evidence um, that would say that their views are wrong, they in fact re-entrenched themselves in the original wrong idea, uh, which is odd, right? Well, that doesn't did that make the government the bad guy then if they're going to say, hey, no sods we've shown they don't work? I'm okay with the government being the bad guy as long as no sods aren't available, or at least, I mean, in this case, they're, they were labeled differently. Um, and I'm not sure, like, the one thing we can't control is how the end user uses it. But, you know, if your homeopath says to somebody who's hesitant about vaccines, you know what, don't worry. Take these no-sodes, it'll, it'll prevent your child's measles, and you go and you buy the no-sode from the health food store, and on the label says, warning, this is not to be used as an alternative to vaccinations because it, there's no evidence it works. Then you're going to have a moment of second thought. Uh, um, you know, or, I mean, or, or they're just going to say, hey, you know, they just stuck that on there because they're being jerks and they want to sell their vaccines. Sure. Um, but the more social pressure we put um, on people to to think about these decisions, I think we can have a change. Now, I'd like to see no-sodes pulled from the market. Unfortunately, you know, due to the way that regulations work and, and the fact that it's been approved in the past, um, you know, it's it's a very difficult task, I've been told, to actually get these things off, off the market unless there, there's a demonstrable um, direct harm, like there's adult, like there's poison in the, 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 uh, the actual uh, medicine. Kind of like um, the teething gel. Like the teething gel, yeah, exactly. Like the teething gel that came out again for the third time in 10 years that, you know, there's actual poison in it. Yeah. I have a question. And is, is there a, a, uh, a time when public outrage can be leveraged? Like, for example, what was it, the Colette? Um, um, maybe I'm getting their name, Colette? Stefan. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. And, and also that woman who, you know, whose child was diabetic who neglected him. Is there a time to leverage that kind of public outrage? Yeah, I, I to- yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I'm going to be using the Stevens, the, the family, as a as an example on Saturday, um, as a model, really. And models aren't perfect. There's a whole lot of, you know, the true hope backstory of that is really, really disappointing um, uh-huh. and frustrating. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, it's a good model to sort of start from. And I and I agree with you. I think that you know, 
we're not going to convince the Stevens. I mean, and we've seen um, David Stevens uh, or Stephens, uh, even after he was sentenced, say he did nothing wrong. But he's yeah, that's a prime example of what you're saying about people doubling down when they're yeah. told they're wrong, kind of thing, right? And we're not going to convince him that he's done something wrong. I mean, it, it, even in the case that his child died, like you'd think that that goes to the power of this kind of ability to convince ourselves, this motivated reasoning that we use to convince ourselves that we're right. Like his actions directly affected the death of his child. Now, I mean, he may have convinced himself that it was out of his hands. Um, yeah. But, uh, or blame toxins in the environment or, sure. you know, there's something else to blame other than his own actions. Absolutely. Um, but we can certainly leverage that to our advantage when we actually target the people who are responsible for this. So, for example, I don't think going after the Stevens for this, like the, the courts have dealt with this. Um, we may not agree that the the, the um, I mean, you may disagree or not agree that the that the punishment is is uh, reflective of the of the crime. Uh, and that really, I mean, I have no idea if it's appropriate or not. I'm not a lawyer, but um, but you know, we can go after the people that were giving the Stevens advice or well, themselves. Well, they I know sell true hope. <laughs> this is the problem. Yeah, no, exactly. And, uh, like using it as and a they, model. Were, they were invited to a conference to speak. And I think there's yeah, some public outrage that got them barred. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, you're right. Like, like taking it, like I'm going to use them. I'm using it as a model without sort of acknowledging, at least at first, this other true hope problem. Um, when we approach, so if, if the Stevens were an isolated family, um, then we're looking at the natural path. We're looking at the products that they were using. They used the True Hope products uh, that are approved to, to, for sale in Canada. They used a couple other products that are that have an MPN numbers. Um, and the advice they were getting from professionals, uh, not to mention their own family, um, you know, is d- demonstrably wrong. So why is the naturopath who was advising, first of all, you know, from all accounts, the naturopath was, was diagnosing the child over the phone, which is unethical. <laughs> you know, like you have to do physical exam and see the child. And I imagine if they had brought this sick, you know, meningitis child to this naturopath, I would hope that they would have looked at the child and went, oh my goodness, this child is very sick. I can't take care of this child. We have to call 911 or go to the hospital. Well, I would hope that even fooled themselves about what he, how sick he was. They were in absolute denial, and they probably didn't even tell her half the symptoms. Like he was stiff mm-hmm. as a board. Yeah, exactly. Not exactly. not that I'm trying to defend her, but these people, when the people that did see him, they advised the Stephans to take him to the hospital. They still did not. So even if the naturopath had advised them, they still would not have done it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, convince everybody all the time. You know, these people have an emo- not just a financial investment. They they sell this kind of stuff, but they have an emotional investment in it. They they put basically everything they have behind it. It's going to be Including very difficult the kid. to get these people to recognize that when there's such an investment in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and I understand that frustration. Like I, I'm equally frustrated and angry at them for their choices. My my I mean my greater point though I think is that even though that kind of anger certainly is is, is warranted. Right? I think that they did something wrong and they were arrested for it and convicted of it, of neglect, failing to provide the necessities of life. Um, I think the larger point is if we're going to prevent this from happening in the future, picking people out like the Stevens, barring, let's just let's just take them without the True Hope connection, for, for example. For example, let's, look at, let's talk about the other, the other mom who taught their, who, uh, who treated their child for diabetes and uh, or even the people in, we had a, a couple, uh, an indigenous couple in Hamilton. Now this is a whole other kind of can of worms because of mm-hmm. the colonial, yeah. you know, legacy that we're trying to freaking deal with. But um, you know, people who chose uh, in the face of what was an obvious treatment for a curable disease to to eschew that treatment and to choose something else. Um, that was chemo, correct? 
That was chemo, yeah. I think yeah. the child had leukemia, and the, I think the cure rate for the leukemia that the child had was about 90%, yeah. but they decided yeah. to go to a, a natural health practitioner down in Florida. Who uh, pandered. Who pandered. I think well, we talked and, about that in our podcast yeah, at the time. I was very upset about that. That was yeah. really upsetting. Yeah. Well, and that particular clinic panders to the natives, so they use the prayer and the wheatgrass and everything else to mm-hmm. draw them and their money. Panders, I don't think is quite the right word, exploits. Targets. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. But but again, like I think that to, to prevent this in the future, I think that that, that calling these people out uh, for being bad parents, though they may be, I mean, who they're knows? They're duped. They're so they're, duped. They're so they're invested. Yeah. Well, they're victims themselves. I, my, yeah. My point is that if we're going to convince other people to make different decisions in the future, I don't think that it's very effective. Te- uh, tactic to call people to even to, even to victimize even to call them victims because people don't want to feel like victims and like I think that to get into that debate no matter how um, in some cases righteous it makes us feel or in you know in other cases uh, in that kind of not Schadenfreude because I don't want to I don't want people to think that we're we're taking pleasure in these people's suffering, oh, gosh, but no. you know how many times have you saying, "Well, you know, that's what you get for making that decision." I think it, right? it, is what you're looking for. Yes, exactly. At the point, the, yeah, and the thing is, you can be mad at the parents, but what's that going to solve? Exactly. So we're so my point is that like I think it's a better technique uh, for me for our organization to sort of find out what the what the underlying values that these people hold are and try to find the ones that we share in common and then use that as a communication strategy to focus on the people we think are really causing the problem, who, who are the professionals who are registered with the government, who are regulated by or self-regulated in their own colleges and or empowered by the approval of these kind of bogus medicines by Health Canada yeah. uh, to operate. And so if we restrict, uh, you know, if something's pulled off the market because it's labeled as dangerous or ineffective, I think that that sends a strong message to the people we can reach. Uh, and there are going to be people who are going to believe in this stuff and they're going to be people who think there's a grand conspiracy mm-hmm. by the government to, to take all their supplements away, fueled by people like the Canadian Health Food Association. I'm not sure if you've seen their rhetoric around oh, the recent yes. change in you know the, the health regulations, but they're basically telling people, you know, uh, resist this, these changes or else the can- government of Canada is going to come to your store and take all these things off the shelves. That's not... That's just not what's happening, right? Well, and it was the same thing that, that how people got behind Bill C-51. All the government wanted was permission to go on private land to seize things that shouldn't be sold. Exactly. So they turned that into the whole, oh, they're coming to get all your natural health products. Yeah. And it, that wasn't even it, but they convinced well, so everybody to Twyla. rally. Twyla, could you tell mm-hmm. people what Bill C-51 is? It's That's basically what it was. They, it was a law that they wanted to be able to go on private land and seize things that are being sold dubiously with dubious claims. They've already been charged. So they wanted to be able to go seize the products even though they're on private land. That was the law. Now, the people against the law, <laughs> the people that want to sell these dubious products, told everybody in Canada using fax and email and everything at the time that they possibly could come out and protest this. It's going to take exactly what Michael was saying. They're going to take away your stuff. I just want to interrupt and make it clear that you, when you said the word fax, it was F-A-X and not F-A-C-T-F. They were actually faxed. Yeah, they fast. fast <laughs> health food stores. This whole propaganda piece about how you gotta fight this. Who uses yeah. facts these days anyway? It was about uh, ten years ago. 
Yeah, okay. It was about 10 years ago, so. <laughs> yeah, you, you it's very... <laughs> you can still. I hate getting faxes because, you know, when people email things, you just save it to your electronic file. Now you got to scan the fax into your computer. Well, apparently it's, it's... more secure. That's that's why government still uses uh-huh, fax. Sure. It's ridiculous. Oh, until, they, yeah, until CIBC faxes their client information to, you know, exactly. I got faxes from uh, at my government fax where I work, from doctor's offices. <laughs> Whoops, here's a patient note. <laughs> yeah. So, so now that everybody's basically heard your talk and won't be there on Saturday, uh, what is, uh, uh, let's talk, just switch gears and talk about uh, Bad Science Watch. Now, how did that start? Right. So we, um, Jamie Williams uh, and Carol Parlow, my co-founders at Bad Science Watch, back in uh, 2011 identified that we need to have an organization uh, nationally that was focused on, again, real change, uh, that was going to, I guess, widen um, our audience uh, from outside what was essentially the skeptical community. Like, we all came out of that community, and we realized that um, you know, in a lot of ways we're preaching to the converted, and there was a real communications problem. Uh, in that uh, we needed to find tactics uh, and approaches to making uh, that were focused on making change rather than either educating or, or, or making us feel good. Uh, and that meant that we um, had to open it up to a wider community as well. Like we've got, we, we figured that we had allies outside uh, in the general science community. Um, and and as, as it turns out, you know, with the focus that we've taken in the past couple of years with, with health regulations uh, in the public health community and uh, in the medicine, medical community in general, and by leveraging that kind of support, we could make some change uh, at the governmental level. So we went through this whole process of, uh, like I said, branding and uh, figuring out our message and uh, and wanted to sort of act as a uh, as kind of a professional uh, communications company in trying to, to bring about um, change with a focus on consumer protection, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where we came from. Um, you know, we we managed to generate a lot of interest with with new volunteers, and and uh, our stop no sits campaign attracted the interest of a lot of public health prof- professionals. I wasn't quite aware. I mean, we had chosen stop no sits as a as kind of low hanging fruit. Like this is the obvious problem with the regulation of natural health products. Like why. If we can't change this, we can't change anything. And uh, and what was surprising to me was that the problem was so widespread, especially in the West. Um, we had gotten – I'd spoken to a public health nurse in Alberta who said that, you know, in her community, um, public health nurses, every week there was somebody coming into the office to show they'd had uh, their vaccinations up to date and they brought in a note from their homeopath. Oh. And they had no idea how to kind of approach that because, I mean, again, you want these people to get vaccinated. You don't want to lose them in the system, uh, you know, and and so you have to find a way to communicate with them that doesn't alienate them even further because they're already at a disadvantage or, or the public health nurse is already at a disadvantage when they're trying to communicate with someone who's made this decision because now they've made the decision and they don't want to think that they've made the wrong decision about their, you know, kid's health. So, you know, facing that um, problem, you know, it was a it was a much bigger issue than we thought, especially since um, apparently the government had been hearing from the Alberta Public Health, from the British Columbia Centers for Disease Control, from other public health schools that this was an issue, and they had basically ignored it, which I find incredible. Like when when, when the lower tier kind of party is saying, hey, your your decisions are, are kind of getting in the way of good public health you know, um, policy, you'd think they would take action, but they didn't. It took a more of a public kind of campaign to get them to change their mind, uh, at least somewhat. So that was the kind of effort we were focused on with Bad Science Watch. Yeah. 
So yeah. just thinking. Well, just opening up communication. Yeah, you're yeah. saying, Randy. I was just thinking about, you know, we're on the topic of vaccinations as a big uh, hullabaloo mm-hmm. within, especially in British Columbia with frontline healthcare workers, you know, with the whole uh, vax or mask policy that's going on. And there's, there, it is true that there's very little evidence that shows that you cannot, you know, that, that you're not going to prevent uh, flu or other transmission of other communicable uh, viruses. And that's one argument. But there's an argument that I haven't heard, and that is what what happens if, all of your frontline healthcare workers get sick at the same time. It's, it's an argument that has been totally ignored. And in a pandemic, that could be disastrous. I know I'm getting a little bit off topic here, but I was just thinking about that. I just We were talking about vaccines, and it kind of reminded me of, of uh, what's going on in British Columbia right now. Is that part of the pandemic um, action plans that they have if everybody... If all the frontline workers get sick, or yes, it is. Yes, yeah, it is. I've done some documentation, and I can't really discuss it and that kind of thing. But uh, yes, yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, it is in my organization. We certainly um, we're prepared. We're making preparations. I, I work as a paramedic uh, full time, and uh, you know we're, we're out in the community getting exposed to this stuff. And our lessons from SARS <laughs> kind of taught us that we have <laughs> to pay attention. Otherwise, we're going to start losing healthcare providers, not you know, and not serving the community. Uh, you know, those kind of combinations. And they won't be in a condition that. to. They'll be occupying uh, hospital beds on on their own. Yeah. Uh, and this is something that that just really bothers me is that so many nurses, especially, mm-hmm. will not vaccinate. I, I, you know, it just kind of blows my mind. Well, and after I, I saw the nursing program, um, their alternative medicine, how you feel about it, and how you incorporate it, and yada yada, and kind of a semi bashing of vaccines in the within the nursing program. I'm not surprised. Yeah, me either. At MRU, uh, my wife is in the nursing program there, and they're required to vaccinate. They, they don't have a choice. Do they have that? It, it was the last bridge that had that um, stuff in their curriculum. I, uh, where she's at, do they actually at least not do that? Yeah, I don't know what it is for it's, other universities. I, yeah. I think it might be a legislative thing as well. I know that there's entry to practice um, in the act. I mean, Well, at least with paramedics in the act, you have to have a certain – you have to show uh, – in the Canada Health Act? Or uh, no, 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 sorry. In Ontario, it's provincial, yeah. yeah. In provincial, to enter into the profession, you have to have a certain number of vaccinations. And I and I know that uh, it is, there's a similar thing, but it's not quite as robust with nurses, in Ontario at least. I'm not sure about Alberta, but that's definitely provincial. Uh, there yeah, might be a provincial, provincial mandate. Provincial, uh, yeah, it'd be under their purview. And uh, yeah, it's kind of a, you know, when you have healthcare workers that don't buy into the what is cl- clear to us, as scientific skeptics that vaccinations work, how do you, do we expect the public at large to all you know go against that? Yeah, I agree. I, I know that um, one of our former advisors, Ken, Dr. Ken Milne, who's an emerge physician down in Huron County in uh, southwestern Ontario, uh, tackled this problem in his own hospital. He's in a, in a community hospital, and they I think they got up to ninety five percent compliance rate uh, oh. with their vaccinations, and they they, they put out. They basically took a communications approach, convinced people to get it. And uh, instead of the hammer of, you know, mm-hmm. you will get this or you will wear a mask and we will embarrass you. Because uh, people don't respond to that very well. No, right? no they d- they'll double down. We've already exactly. talked about the double down. That'll double yeah. down them. Exactly. Paramedics said the same. We, uh, You know, when, when the flu vaccine... Um, we have a public health unit in my, uh, or we have public health nurses in my, um, in the region where I work. And I have had discussions with uh, some of them who went through the, when the original mandate came down to f- when the flu vax came out. Uh, they were convinced it was killing their clients. Oh my. I'm not sure how. 
they thought it was killing their clients. But it, there became this real opposition uh, that they saw. You know, they saw their clients getting uh, sick, uh, which they're prone to do in in uh, in uh, long-term care facilities. I mean, they're, they're elderly and they're already compromised immunologically, right? And so, you know, everyone gets the flu vaccine, and then 20% of them get some other infection, and you think, oh my God, they got the flu vaccine. Like it's just improper. Um, yeah, it's not correlation. No. They need to understand that something else made them sick. Like, I mean, yes, exactly. this happens all the time, whether it's yeah. norovirus or RSV. Forgetting the misses. Yeah. yeah. Like, exactly. It's frustrating, I know. I always figured as well that I think that it's important. Like one tactic that I've taken at least is to uh, be a model. Like what? Like model the behavior I want to see in other people, right? So when I get my flu vaccine every year, I tell everyone about it. Hey, I got my flu vaccine last week, you know. And then you, when you confront people, you find out. I'm witnessing. I know. We got to take a lesson from the from the. From the I, I, I know. It works. It works, right? I think I'm the only girl in the office that's an administrative assistant that actually gets the flu vaccine. So every year I tromp in there with my sore arm and they all kind of look at me. Like, there's no proclamation good for you, that's for sure. Exactly. And if we can get thought leaders in those same communities to do the same thing, then more people are going to buy into it, right? And, I, and again, this is going back to my other talk. Like if we use an empathic approach and identify values, we can, we can identify the people who, who uh, are, are – um, the people who are resistant to these ideas, we can, we can identify the people whom they trust and then target those people. Um, and by, I mean, that's a bit of, you may have, may run into the same problem, right? Like if you, if you find a minister, uh, for example, um, you know, preaching creationism and you target the minister, well, of course, their flock is going to go, wait a second, like that's, that's offside as well. But I think if you can do the opposite and identify the people, um, that people trust in their own circles and convince them, then you'll have a better chance of convincing the people in the wider uh, community uh, who trust those people. So uh, it's a bit, I mean, it's, uh, you could look at it as kind of a manipulation, but I, I think that it's the way that things happen anyways, randomly. So we better use that to our advantage and find a way to convince people that, that they should model the behavior they want to see in their, in their, uh, in their reports. Oh, yeah, or we should their... be using the most effective te- techniques possible. And it, that, that's the, you know, the thinking person's approach. Yeah, and I would use the word persuasion rather than manipulation. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, yeah, exactly. Right, right. Well, yeah. Potato, potato. <laughs> uh, one's nicer. See, I'm, I'm persuading you to adopt, you know, persuasive language rather than manipulative language, even though it's the same bloody thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, it's, it's just a different framing. Yeah. 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 So what, uh, what has uh, Bad Science Watch been up to lately uh, in terms of their uh, pet uh, right. needs, I guess you could call it? So um, I'll go through about the, the past year has been a bit tumultuous for us. We um, Coming out of we, – we did a uh, – we fought against back, um, the changes in uh, – not fought against, sorry. We, we uh, were advocating for specific changes in Vanessa's law a couple years ago. That was the sort of inheritance of Bill C-51. Uh, in which the NHP community uh, won again because they got a specific exemption in the law for natural health products, which meant that natural health products remained the only product in Canada that the government cannot force a mandatory recall on. Uh, you can recall cars and coats and apples and Tylenol, but you cannot re- you cannot comply. And this is the problem with the teething you know yeah, exactly. solution, oh, right? So we got we got this problem, but but and and they argued, you know. And I think that the, finally the government has – and the bureaucracy's kind of thrown up its hands and went, okay, we're just going to call bullshit. This is ridiculous. Like you cannot tell us that there's not an inherent problem in a product that has poor quality control. 
you cannot tell us that you know something is inherently safe. Nothing is inherently safe. Everything has risks and benefits. Um, you know, water has risks and benefits. You drink too mm-hmm. much of it, and you will die. So, um, or you can drown in it, for example. So, uh, you know, these. I think they finally they finally got been pushed to the edge. Um, but during Vanessa's law, you know, they got to the politicians and they convinced them that um, natural health products are inherently safe and therefore they do not need to be in this uh, law. So coming out of that, we went, well, what's our next tactic? Now, we, we had um, uh, we had done a couple – we worked with uh, CBC um, um, Fifth Estate uh, a year ago and uh, on the documentary on, on supplements, uh, which was which, – which basically told the story we've been telling – since we started in 2012, we happened to just as a. It's funny how things sort of happen all together. When we started in 2012, the, the Health Canada came out with a new pathway to licensing for all their natural health products, and I went to one of the roadshows to sort of see what their tactic was, and it was it was eye opening. Let me tell you, uh, mm-hmm. to take a risk based approach to approval of uh, these products instead of a cost benefit or a risk benefit, and uh, it was so we, we we crafted a story and we told everyone we knew, and we finally got it told on mainstream media oh, last yeah, fall, yeah. and so. Unfortunately, <laughs> we're all volunteers at Bat Science Watch. I've got a full-time job, and I also go to school part-time, and I've got other things that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bat Science Watch became, I mean, it really just burned me out. It burned Jamie Williams out. He had to step back as the executive director, and I took over in the interim, and then it burned me out. And so last fall, we took a little hiatus uh, to take a break, and I thought, you know, maybe we won't be back. Maybe we just can't do this in this current client, or maybe we don't have the kind of resources to, to go up against these other organizations, certainly not as a volunteer organization. And we came to the conclusion that that really wasn't, I mean, there were still things we could do in a moderate way to affect change. And uh, we still had some, some, some stuff in us. So we came back in April of 2016, and we decided to have two projects. Uh, one that was very successful was the natural the NNHPD consultation committee. So the Natural Health Products Directorate puts out public consultations on monographs, and monographs are... Uh, basically pre-approval documents. So if you have a single uh, ingredient product as a supplement and you want to get it to market, if you follow all the rules in the monograph, you can have uh, approval for your product in as little as 10 days, which is incredible. Like, and no to get a, efficacy a health necessary to, you, to show efficacy. Not at all. It's all, it's all risk. But the, the claim, the, the amount of uh, evidence you have to show is based on the risk of the claim, right? So if you make a general health claim or a traditional health claim, you have to provide basically no evidence um, or very, very like expert opinion. You find a naturopath to say, yes, this herb works for X, then you're good. Right. So that's so, unbelievable. Yeah. Oh, unbelievable. I know. And, and they realize there's a problem with this. And the problem is that they haven't heard from anybody but uh, the producers in the past 20 years. Hmm. Uh, the medical community, the um, you know, mainstream pharmaceutical community owns all these companies, many of them, uh, many of the larger ones, the supplement manufacturers, so they're not going to speak out against it. <laughs> and um, they... What about pharmacist There's no organization? Uh, well, they were special. making money off of – yeah, yeah. they are making <laughs> money off of these things. Like they're, they're not going to speak out against them either, right? Well, yeah, and that's the biggest irony of all this. They're like, oh, the big pharma, they're against these things. They're the ones well, selling they're the ones them. producing them, yeah. And selling <laughs> them. It, it's the biggest irony, and I, I, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. Well, the, the other problem, of course, is that the – the rhetoric they use to sell these things are, well, these are, uh, for example, quality control I think is a huge issue. We have identified many studies now that have shown that the quality control of natural health products is crap. And in oh, fact, yeah. under the law, there is no requirement that you have a quality control program in place for natural health products. 
What's you have one to, big example of that that you can tell us? Oh, uh, well, there was the Guelph, uh, the, the new master study out of Guelph um, found, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be approximate on these percentages, but at least ha- they took a random sample of products off the shelf, which they would not release uh, the names of, I think because of a liability issue because there was a <laughs> producer in the U.S. that just got sued, a uh, researcher in the U.S. just got sued for calling out one of these uh, companies because they found <sighs> operations. So they didn't release the names, but they did forward them on to Health Canada, who promptly did nothing that we know of. Um, but they found that half of all the products they surveyed, they did, it, what they, did they did what's called DNA barcoding. So they basically put the herbs through a process by which they could identify exactly what's in it by the DNA yeah. barcodes. And uh, a process that's not really, that's not the industry standard, but uh, it certainly is very useful to, to answer to the question of are these products what they say they are and they found that half of them had uh, adulterations uh, three quarters of them had products in them that were on the label uh, and they had replacements they, they found that a, like a large percentage a third uh, to two thirds maybe had maybe a third I should say had uh, had nothing of the labeled ingredient in them. They had a complete that's, substitution. That's what they found in the past without DNA barcoding. Yes, so that's exactly. not, it's, it's not a surprise. surprise. I know, and and so this is the kind of problem. And and we've seen adulterations. We, I mean, every week we, I get a you know something in my inbox saying someone's put Viagra in this natural sex product, uh, or someone's put cholesterol lowering medication in this other you know heart product. Um, and this you know, this is. And Health Canada is a plain whack-a-mole with these things to try and get them off oh, the yeah, shelves. And they're also complaint-driven. Uh, that's how you, yes. how you, you know, they don't actively go out and test these things. It's a completely complaint-driven thing. Yeah. So well, they mean, they put their, they've got, yeah, they've got limited resources. They shut a bunch of labs down uh, and downsized in the early 2000s. Oh, one of our advisors was one of the people who was downsized, Brian Foster, Dr. Brian Foster. And, uh, and so they don't have the resources to go after these things. So what we've done, uh, so we're not only are we doing, are we telling you that there's a problem and telling the story, but we're also looking at the marketing of these products uh, because the licenses, I mean, the individual manufacturers are, I think, pretty good. I mean, they have to be to be com- in compliance with their license as far as labeling glo- goes. You can argue about what they can, what the, the decision by Health Canada was to put on the label, but you know, most of them are compliant, I think, with the labeling. The problem is once they get onto a mar- onto a uh, distributor's shelf or retailer's shelf, then the retailer can basically do whatever they want because there's uh, now, excuse me, now there are close to 100,000 products uh, since the amalgamation of cosmetics, non-prescription, and natural health products in the NNHPD database. Before this amalgamation, there were upwards of 60,000 products of non-prescription and natural health products. Um, I mean, most stores contain, what, 15,000 SKUs? Uh, stock keeping units, right? So they're not, nobody can possibly stock 60,000 different products. Um, we found about 30,000, I think, that use the word uh, traditional in their, in their, uh, in their license. So there, it's impossible to go after these retailers who are making basically any claim they want um, about these products. And our suspicion is that people are thwarting the license and promoting these products as uh, cures or treatment for restricted diseases. Under the Food and Drug Act, there is an appendix, mm, sorry, Schedule C, I think it's Schedule C, uh, that lists uh, all the, you know, health, um, all the health uh, conditions that you cannot market cures or treatment for, mm-hmm. like heart disease and alcoholism and, uh, you know, uh, stroke and and uh, cancer, all the kind of big ones, right? And now, you could market, again, under the law, you can market 
things to prevent those products, those health problems, Dual, which again is a problem because there's no evidence that they prevent it, but you can't, you can't market a cure or treatment. So what we're doing with the Natural Health Product Marketing Project is we're taking a survey um, of online uh, retailers in Canada. We've got about 177 people, uh, websites identified. We're going to go through and through keyword searches using the pen, uh, Schedule C, or Schedule A, excuse me, Schedule A, uh, we're going to identify keywords for, like, for example, cancer. We're doing a pilot project to get it all under underway right now. We're using cancer and its analogs to identify these products to see if retailers are actually marketing these products directly. Uh, I don't, we don't have any data yet. I'm not sure if they're going to be in compliant or not. I suspect that given the problem we've had with flu no-sodes, that they're not going to be compliant. We already did a small project about a year and a half ago that identified 15 online uh, 15 uh, online sources in Canada, uh, pretty mainstream, um, as far as those things go, uh, sellers of flu no-sodes, of the influenza in them, who were marketing against the license. And we, we, we sent those to the Marketed Health Products Directorate, which is the Again, the inspectorate at Health Canada, the people who enforce the law, and they managed to get them to change their websites uh, to be in compliant, to be compliant with the actual original manufacturer's paperwork and the license under Health Canada. So that small kind of victory led into this larger project. We're, we're asking the question: Are people compliant? And uh, we're certainly looking for volunteers to help evaluate. We have a lot of data, upwards of 278 gigs of these websites that we have to go sort of scrape through and, and search and, and evaluate. Uh, it's going to take a little bit of time, but I think it's going to be worthwhile because we're going to we're going to answer we're going to try and answer this question about whether you know these retailers are actually upholding the law or whether, like we suspect, they're hiding in obscurity and uh, getting away with uh, selling people bogus uh, crap. And that, that's what I wanted to bring up. Uh, is if people wanted to become involved with Bad Science Watch, uh, you're looking for volunteers for for data analysis, for instance. Instance, absolutely. We could uh, we could use at least I don't know ten or fifteen people um, extra now uh, to do data analysis for this project. We've got uh, we're evaluating or we're establishing. Um, kind of a protocol and a training program. And you would uh, basically go through about a one-hour training to access the data and use our uh, use our tool. And then uh, you would, you know, call up one of these websites and evaluate it given the keywords found in it. And, uh, you know, it's something you can do, much like citizen science products projects, it's something you can come to and leave. You don't have to, like, commit to a certain number of hours a week. You can sort of work on it as much as you can and uh, until we get finished. And so we're looking for volunteers for that, certainly. Uh, that's that's our greatest need, I think, right now. Um, other than, of course, fundraising professionals who want to help us because as volunteers and as grassroots activists, fundraising is the weakest part of any kind of organization like this. Uh, but yeah, if you want to get a hold of us, they can they can uh, send an email to our volunteer coordinator at volunteer.coordinator at badsciencewatch.ca uh, or find us through the website uh, or Facebook uh, or Twitter and we'd certainly get back to you because um, we could certainly use your uh, expertise and it doesn't while we have a lot of people who are you know we've got some epidemiologists who uh, work for us or volunteer for us we've got other scientists and people who have done uh, this kind of research in the past uh, you don't have to have a science background to uh, participate in this you know we're going to we're going to provide you the training we need to sort of get everyone to a minimum standard um, and getting involved with this I think gives people an outlet, right? Like when you're sitting there thinking, what can I do? When you get frustrated with, with these things like the, 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 the Stevens case in Alberta uh, and, you know, it's kind of overwhelming and everyone feels like a, you know, one person, what can one person do? When we do this kind of work, we found that, you know, if we get, if we get together in a, in a collective way and, and talk back to Health Canada, uh, they will listen to us. So, you know, send us an email and, and let us know if you want to volunteer. Oh, that's good. Okay. Uh, any questions, guys? I've talked about um, it. I don't know. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> That's a pretty thorough interview. 
Um, I'm, I'm just, I live by a shopper's drug mart and I'm wondering if you're looking at, um, um, like health food specifically, or sorry, health food stores or, you know, whatever supplement stores specifically, or if you're looking at some of the big chains and what they're, they're marketing, because I know that Chopper's Drug Marts are independently owned and, and they've just got, you know, the one I live by has just got a bunch of bullshit, yeah. you know, a bunch of homeopathic remedies and stuff like that. And I'm just like, oh, why are they doing this? You know, because yeah. they make money. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. There is a, I feel, um, I've been talking to some volunteers who work in that industry, who work in the first pharmaceutical industry, and, I've, and they're they they're telling me that there is starting to be some movement, especially when homeopathy. Uh, they all remember when the cigarettes were pulled out of pharmacies. Mm-hmm. That took a legal order, right? That took a law change, but uh, from what I re- remember, it was a while ago. But uh, you know, they they were resistant to that, but understood that philosophically, it didn't make any sense for a pharmacy to sell cigarettes. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that they're slowly coming around to that kind of point on homeopathy. Now, vitamins, like, forget it. That's a huge yeah. market for them. Uh, we are, basically what I did to, to, to get the uh, the data set that we've got, it was collected, because we're doing a pilot study right now, uh, it really is about the design of the uh, study. It's not necessarily about the current state of the data. Our data set, uh, well, we, we collected it last fall, was based on a... Uh, a list of websites that we pulled from a couple different databases online. I'm not going to tell you where they are in case they, they don't <laughs> let us access them in the future um, <laughs> because they're meant for consumers. But, uh, you know, we we basically targeted people who were selling stuff online. Okay. And now, uh, Shoppers Drug Mart may have an online store, uh, but I don't think that they do anymore. I think they want you to come into the store. So uh, that's the kind of limitation. Um, we yeah, I'm just wondering on- if there might be some pressure to put, you know, like, hey, if you're going to mm-hmm. be a... Shoppers Drug Mart as a corporation kind of thing might uh, have to, you know, put out the order. Hey, if you're going to sell this crap, you can't be associated with our brand name. You can't hold this brand name, right? Hey, what you can tell the consumers is if you're buying the big pharma homeopathy, only big pharma is getting the money. And then that'll get scores of people away from giving big pharma money, right? Yeah, but people are too lazy to read the labels. They see the the sub brand of a huge corporation and think, oh, it's you know, I don't oh, know, they, that little thing, yeah, yeah. I mean, marketing legitimize it, right? That yeah, too. yeah. So yeah. And then they think it really is medicine, and yeah, yeah. yeah. not everybody bashes big pharma. Some actually still like big pharma. So yeah. well, it has I a well, <laughs> it, it's always disappointing to us. Like we're not a defense. We're not. We don't go out and defend big pharma. They can defend themselves. They've got enough money and power. We're not going to add to that, and uh, and we certainly, yeah, exactly. We've certainly called them out on things like uh, we're a, we're a sign, we're a signatory to the uh, uh, the all trials campaign out of uh, out of the UK, where they want people to actually uh, not people, but uh, the pharmaceutical corporations to publish their clinical data uh, and the clinical data books, uh, so people res- researchers especially can evaluate them uh, in a third party way to see if they actually the data they've covered actually matches the claims on the label. Um, and so they've got their own problems uh, when it comes to this kind of um, trade secrets uh, issue because we really have to, you know, for, in order for us to trust them, we kind of have to trust the FDA uh, or Health Canada uh, or the European uh, Drug Agency. Um, whatever, I, that's probably not the right name, but there's a European commission that does that kind of research as well, or approval as well. And so we have to sort of trust them to do the job for us. And of course, you know, the way that power works is those with the money have the access. And if we can't get access to the FDA, then, you know, they may be convinced when we wouldn't to sell these products. So we want to have the, the pharmaceutical companies release this data into a, you know, a database. It's certainly happening. Um, 
uh, in Canada has not quite happened yet, but it's not a lot of primary drug research that happens up here. It happens down in the U.S. mostly. Yeah. I have another question. Um, do you think that uh, the government under Trudeau as opposed to Harper is friendlier to your messaging? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what? We, it's funny. The changes that we wrought with, with no-sodes actually occurred under Harper. Um, okay. And Rona Ambrose was the, was the health minister at that time. Because it was a regulatory issue, it wasn't a legislative issue. Uh, like the regulator, the bureaucrats, uh, you know, while the, the people in charge of these organizations, the directors general and the, uh, and the managers, certainly they have to respond to their political masters um, and, 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 uh, and, and move when they move. But, you know, if, if they're making decisions on, on how to interpret the regulations, there we can have a real change. And I think that I think it's telling that even under the Harper regime, um, who was very st- pro-free market, like they didn't want restrictions on these products, and oh, despite yeah. that, um, they, you know, they made these kind of they made these changes, and they realized that it's a that they've, they've got a huge problem. Now, I am more optimistic under the Trudeau uh, government that they're committed to open government. Um, the last couple of years, the Canadian Science Policy Conference has been a big focus on evidence-based policy, uh, sorry, evidence-based decision-making for public policy. Now, it's a big, uh, what's that called, buzzword. So lots of people like to use it, and, and really it, you know, it makes a difference when how they, in how they apply it. But uh, certainly after this year's Canadian Science Policy Conference that we went to, that I went to in, in the fall, it looks like they are fully committed. Now they have to convince people to change, because under the Harper government, you know, we've spoken to people who worked in departments, uh, especially in uh, climate change uh, or yeah. environmental, where their managers are still really afraid to move. Um, and it's going to take shuffling of the leadership in those departments to, to really make the change complete uh, because they're still working under the – I mean, you do it for long enough and it just becomes automatic oh, that paper is not going to fly. I'm going to put that in a drawer or refer it to council and not and not act on it uh, or send it to my minister until we've done that because it's just not, uh, you know. Um, They're not still under match. orders to pass everything through. Uh, I don't know. Well, that's I, Yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, you're still responsible to your yeah. <laughs> senior management, right? But, I mean, officially, they're supposed to be open. The problem is that there's still inertia within the bureaucracy because they're still working they're, they're still sort of getting over the 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 uh, even a year later they're getting over the uh, the harper hangover yeah, so shock hasn't yeah exactly but but i think things are i'm optimistic that things are changing um and and while we don't deal with a lot of departments directly health canada really is the only ones we deal with uh, under our with our current projects it sounds like everyone is very focused on uh using science as a way to to uh to um to inform policy now of course that depends on the question government asks because government just doesn't Go, hey, uh, what should we do? Let's uh, look at the literature and see what we should do. Oh, the literature says this. So let's do that. Uh, they don't. They ask a specific question, right? They say, you know, if we did this, what would happen? Uh, and then their scientists go out and they answer that question for them. And if they don't ask the right question, they're not going to get the right evidence. And I think it was clear that there's still a roadblock if a third party – I mean, again, I, I'm kind of talking out through, out of my, through my hat on this one because I'm not a researcher. But my understanding was that if a third party, like an academic researcher, made a discovery about – I don't know, uh, sea lice. That's a that's kind of a BC coast thing in, in like salmon fisheries. That I'm not sure if they made a discovery that went against government current government policy. If the government would listen to it, uh, because they have not interested, you know, they may not be interested in changing that policy right now because of all the parties involved, the fisheries and the and the fishers and the 
uh, industry and the regulator and the province, like that might be a difficult thing. To, so they might just ignore that evidence. But I think that they're committed to actually, you know, having an evidence-based repro- approach. So I'm optimistic that things are changing. I know that that may be a bit naive. Uh, I may be, I'm an optimist generally. I may be disappointed, but... I'm I'm wondering if under Trump, you know, with the Trump, if that's going to light a fire under Canadian asses to be a little bit more on the center stage of, you know, um, promoting scientific and evidence-based policy. That certainly is an opportunity. Does it kind of matter when... It depends on if it's a federal issue or provincial issue, and then it depends on the government within the province and then the people in the department it's quite there's yeah. so many layers and yeah. then if they don't understand like if it's not communicated to them why it's important it's almost like you almost have to threaten them with some kind of we're going to the media with this then and this is can they even do that yeah i so here's our tactic on stop no sods we took three kind of tactics. One was we made a solid argument, so we had the evidence, uh, and then we communicated with uh, Health Canada. Now, we don't have access at Health Canada like other consumer groups do or, or uh, industry groups do. Um, frankly, I mean, uh, you know, I'm a paramedic. I was in theater. I'm not a political operative. <laughs> yeah. You know, we have, we're getting some advice on that uh, through an organization called the Advocacy, Canadian Advocacy Network out of Ottawa. Good, good. Um, which is great, but uh, you know we weren't quite sure where to go. Right? Well, I'll just send an email to X, or I'll, I'll ask for a meeting with Y, and we'll see what happens. Uh, or get and, in on a committee meeting, or get mm-hmm. in on. But who do you talk to to find out what committee and when they meet? Yeah, exactly. well, that's well, it. You identify the stakeholders, right? Yeah, and you exactly. engage them. Yeah, and so that's what we a basic do. Tactic. Yeah, we went to, we decided to throw stones from outside the wall mm-hmm. and we got the public, you know, we got public health uh, physicians and nurses to sign on to this. Um, to this thing and then made it a media story. And there I think go. that they, like that was, a, that's one tactic. And I, and in, I think in this case, it's surprising to me, especially that when we heard that these other government, you know, the provincial government organizations had made complaints to health Canada about this and they'd done nothing. I thought, well, what does it take if your own, you know, uh, if your own co- counterparts at provincial government are saying, you guys are doing a crappy job, but we've got a problem, you have to help us solve it, and they're not doing it. Well, during the Harper time, oh. that's understandable, but now? I know. Well, this is, this is not just Harper's legacy. Like, this came from, this came from the Liberals in 97 with the, uh, with, with the Alan Rock's original committee. Okay. Um, and they, uh, Alan Rock was the health minister in 1997. He's from, I think he's from Newfoundland. Alan, was Alan Rock from Newfoundland? I forget where, where he was, was, where his constitu- constituency was. But Alan Rock was the health minister in the late 90s. And in 97, uh, he set up a commission to, uh, to answer this question about regulation of natural health products and supplements because they were large, they were regulated as foods prior yeah. to that and which was very ineffective because you know the food laws weren't really made for those <laughs> kind of products and so people were getting away with stuff and and the industry kind of went we need legitimacy so we want to be regulated mm-hmm. uh, which is funny because now that they now they're arguing we don't want to be regulated yeah. like basically well they, they found out what that meant yeah exactly oh, well, and that was, yeah exactly and that was the problem back in uh, you know after and this again this is a bit of third party information but this is the story we've pieced together about science watch that they demanded this regulation. Alan Rock went, okay, that's a great idea. Uh, we'll strike, we'll say that Health Canada has to have this new department that's going to regulate natural health products. We're going to set up the NNHPD and then set up a regulatory framework. So uh, I'm not sure if they passed any, they must have passed, I, I, they, there was, I think they must have updated the Food and Drug Act. I know there was regulations passed 
about natural health products, and I can't recall what the specific legislation was, but they set up the NHPD, and in 2004, uh, you know, what, eight years later, or, or seven years, um, sorry, uh, six years later, they'd set up the, they launched the NHPD, and then they discovered that there were <laughs> 60,000 products, and this, the framework <laughs> that they had put together to get approval had failed. They were behind by tens of thousands of products. I think I don't know how many licenses they had before they went to the pathway to licensing, but it was it was not very many, and people were frustrated. And they ended up saying, "Okay, you know what we're going to do? Everyone has a presumptive approval, and then we'll get to your form soon." Oh, right, and uh, and that led to and and they set up a science council. The guy who ran it originally, and again uh, that name is escaping me, was a an evidence-based, he was a scientific, he came from the scientific community, like he was the person you would think should be in charge of a regulatory agency who was testing things for efficacy, quality, and purity, uh, quality and uh, and safety. And uh, he tried his best, and they ended up disbanding the Science Advisory Council because basically the Science Advisory Council went, we can't approve any of this. It's ridiculous. The level of evidence is crappy. So they went, okay, well... Yeah, well, that's that's not, the, that's not the, yeah exactly. That's not what we want to hear. So we'll just get rid of you. Um, I guess it's a real. I mean, it's it's got to be a scandal. Like like, but no one cared because the only people listening were the people who wanted to get the drugs approved, and those who were selling them. And consumers didn't care, or they weren't made. They weren't. You know, there was no message. There was nobody sending them the message to care. And so then they came up with this pathway to licensing in 2012 because all they were listening to were the the manufacturers who said, we want to get our products to market. And they went, well, how do we get the products to market? Well, we'll do a risk. How do we do it safely? Well, we'll do a risk-based assessment. We'll say, you can't say you have a cure to cancer. You can say, we support immune health. And if you, <laughs> yeah. and if you do that, then that's, okay. that's a, a low-risk claim. You can do whatever you want. And, uh, and then they approved tens of thousands of products they were just getting these things through like like nobody's business and then they went with monographs and and that's where we've ended up here now we've got all these products approved there's very low quality assurance the law says you don't have to have quality assurance programs in place you just have to keep records if you do decide to have quality assurance unlike the food unless unless unlike the pharma you know industry that that has to have quality assurance in place uh, and then you get these problems with adulteration, contamination, and substitution, which uh, put people at risk. Yeah. It's amazing the difference between the two industries. I mean, yeah, the we've industry full and the natural product industry. Totally different rules. Of course. Yes. Otherwise, otherwise you wouldn't have a health product industry. Well, you mentioned was, one had been supplemented with Viagra. How the hell did that happen? Like, how did they get their hands on that without, you know, having well, to disclose that? that and, yeah, I, well, I guess, but, it's done you know. This, right? These things yeah, pop up. It's yeah. like back and forth. I mean, I, I, my understanding is that these products are being imported from uh, someplace else, and the, the retailers import them, and then when they get caught, they get seized, and there's nothing else yeah. they can do. The fines are jo- – like, the fact that they were left out of, the, of Vanessa's law means the fines are laughable. Uh, the fines before Vanessa's law were $5,000. Uh, it might be per occurrence. I thought it was per day of occurrence. I'm not quite sure, but $5,000. They increased them to $5 million for pharmaceutical companies, but oh, they wow. left the natural health products out of place. Nice. Well, right? of course. So, and these doubles – Crazy. Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing is, it's come full circle from them being treated as food. Now they're being basically treated as food again. So – yeah, which is the argument that the Canadian Health Food Association is making? They're not drugs. Well, you're using them like drugs. So you're how selling them like they have health some claim. effect. They're making health claims. Yeah. Making yeah. Health claims. I know it's legally a- now. That's even worse. Before they weren't even allowed to make health claims on the bottle. Yeah, this is worse. Yeah. 
Hopefully the new regulations, I mean, we put in, if, if people are interested, you can go and get Sierra's submission last fall to Health Canada, uh, which identified all these issues because the new regulations basically, if they go through, I mean, who knows what they're going to end up being. Some people, some of our advisors are very pessimistic about if there's going to be any change at all. But if they go through, you know, you won't be able to make a claim on the bottle. If you don't have the evidence, uh, you can't make a claim. You can sell, I don't know, Devil's Claw, period. Here's Devil's Claw. Hopefully, I mean, there's no quality assurance changes, but, you know, Hopefully there's devil's claw in it and it's not adulterated with other products or has a substitution. But let's you know, you can sell the devil's claw, but you can't make a claim that it helps your I don't know, arthritis or whatever the devil's claw helps. Then you're just going back to the way it was. So Yeah. Well at they least. just they then they just put up a website about Devil's Claw without the product name on there and tell you all the wonderful things it's gonna do for you. Exactly, which we think should be illegal as well. When those kind of those kind of things I mean if a if a marketer is doing it, here I mean here's the real kind of the the, the um the the the, the uh, loophole in the law is that you can hire like if I want to sell Devil's Claw to cure cancer I have no idea if it cures cancer but let's just say it cures cancer or they or they think it cures cancer so you can't say this cures cancer on the label so you uh, you won't get that approved by Health Canada so on the label you put you know supports immune health or some other general health claim and, and Health Canada goes yeah okay sure mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and you get a naturopath to rubber stamp that or you find a you know a ten person you know um, open label trial, uh, terrible science basically, to support it. And they, they approve it. Anecdote. <laughs> Anecdote. Yeah. My mom was cured of cancer by devil's claw, so it's perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, you get that approved. And then what you do is you, you hire thought leaders in the community to publish articles in mm-hmm. uh, you know all the natural health journals. Not like journals, chiropractors. But, you know, like chiropractors to say devil's claw cures cancer. Now, they're a third-party professional getting paid by whomever, who knows, to write this article. But it's perfectly legal. And you convince everybody who's prescribing this to prescribe it for cancer, but you don't actually, as a manufacturer, put on the label cancer, and you're perfectly within the law, and it's yep. still complete crap. And, and that's how it used to be and will be again. Yeah, it's Another really thing frustrating. That used to be is uh, pharmaceutical commercial. These used to be illegal yeah. on television. Well, now, they, now, they, now they come with all those. And they're very vague. Well, they're in Canada, they still. Vague. Yeah, yeah. You can only well, market in Canada. You can only market to physicians who are prescribing. Yeah, uh, but yeah. you know, the, the ones, the ones on TV though. Five minutes of the ad is might do this, might do that, might do this, might do that, might have this side effect. If if it has, if it does this, go see a doctor right away. That's American, <laughs> though, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's that's yeah. Yeah. It's incredible that it works though. Like if you bookend that with your life will be fantastic, then people forget the middle part and go, Oh, my life will be fantastic. I'm going to get that little purple pill. Wow, that's a fantastic idea. Like it's <laughs> funny how, I mean, they do it on purpose because it works. Like I don't yeah. think they'd be spending millions of dollars on this advertising if it didn't work. Where half so, of it has to be warnings. Yeah. And the side effects sound so bloody horrendous. Like, <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> and they just mutter them under their breath. <laughs> <laughs> But you don't have to do that for natural health products. Nope. Uh, no. By the way, if there's an effect, there's the side effect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know that's another kind of thing we'd like to hit home. I, I don't understand how they can how they can get away with it. Well, I think that the regulator knows. Like when I spoke to the director general of or the um, I wasn't the director general. He became the director general, but he was the uh, the head of the um, the new pathway uh, or the pathway to licensing in uh, 2012. Uh, and I just forgot his name. But I, when I spoke to him at one of the 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 meetings, I said, okay, so homeopathy. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> like, you know it's a problem. You know you're full of shit, basically. Yep. But you're still doing it. Yeah, well, you know, you've got, if all you've got is the, is the homeopathic manufacturers at your, in your office every week saying, 
Why don't yes. we get our thing to market? Why don't we get our thing to market? What are you doing uh, blocking our way? You know, or threatening, uh, you know, um, access to market lawsuits. I was thinking about these uh, uh, American pharmaceutical commercials. It reminded me of, a, of an SNL skit back, way back. Oh, okay. Happy Fun Ball. Have you ever seen that one? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Commercial that two thirds of it is all the uh, uh, side effects of this happy fun ball. <laughs> it's just a huge long list of, of, of uh, side effects. Meanwhile, I mean, what, what what was happy fun ball? Was it a ball like a, yeah, a rubber ball. ball or yeah? R- yeah meanwhile, ball. in the background, while they're saying all the all the side effects, they're playing with the ball happily, like it's the best thing in the world. <laughs> but one of the actually funny skip <laughs> Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Hey, the Trump ones have been pretty good lately. Uh, I I haven't watched them. Oh, they're so funny. Alec Baldwin is my new hero. I hate hate the Baldwin brothers, but I like this guy. But he's the best actor, greatest actor in the world. Uh, When when he's doing Trump. No, 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 no. Trump hates... There's a case to be made for that statement, though. (laughs) You have to go on YouTube, Google Alec Baldwin Trump. He does okay. the best Trump impressions. I roll around laughing every single Saturday now. And, and they always do it as the open. So, and then they're done. And in fact, they were supposed to devote a whole program to it, but I don't. Oh, and then the funny, the other funny one is the the Putin Im, Im, uh, impersonations now. Cool. So, Let's check that yeah. out. Yeah. They've gotten political. And of course, Trump is saying how horrible they've always been political. Oh, they've, they've always yeah. Been political. yeah. I mean, those are the best yeah. 30s to, to do because, uh, yeah. They're big targets. Yeah. Well, they, they actually do a good job impersonating Trump. Yeah. I remember a thousand points of light from the Bush years when I was a kid. <laughs> a thousand points of light. Yeah. Very funny. Yeah. yeah. Well, I haven't watched it except for the Trump parodies. So, <laughs> so again, uh, people want to get involved in, uh, you know, well, perhaps uh, going through, wading through tons of data. Or some other aspect of Bad Science Watch, how can they get a hold of you? Great. So they can, uh, you can always, for general inquiries, you can always email us at info at badsciencewatch.ca. But if you want to volunteer, certainly send an email to volunteer.coordinator at uh, badsciencewatch.ca. You can find that, uh, a link to that in all the project pages as well uh, at badsciencewatch.ca. And uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from people. And certainly you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, we're at Bad Science Watch and, uh, and slash Bad Science Watch on Facebook. So, and you'll be uh, here yeah, in Calgary on Saturday. I'll be here on Calgary and Saturday. I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, I get to make my case again for empathy and uh, and, uh, and and get to involve involve myself in the debate. Apparently, on the uh, there was quite a debate on the on the uh, meetup um, uh, comment section. There was the, some giant like pro alt med anti alt med kind of debate that erupted, <laughs> which is not certainly what I want to foster. Like that's kind of the point. Like this kind of debate. <laughs> It doesn't work. I mean, I don't know. Well, I, they're, I, making, like, they're making your point for you. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah, I know. I have. I had. I mediated. A, my brother will kill me for talking about this, but I mediated a discussion between his wife and him about vitamins because I had come out of this, this um, uh, fifth estate program uh, about vitamin supplements and the problems with them. And then there was, you know, Paul Offit was on uh, as well, uh, making right. his case, which was great. Yes. And this came up, and I kind of went, "Look, like, you know, bro, your wife." wants you to be healthy. She wants you to eat a vegetable every once in a while. Like she doesn't want you to die early of heart disease. Yeah. You know, I don't think that vitamins are the answer, but maybe the like what's coming up is like she wanted him to have vitamins. He didn't he was he was saying, "Ah, see, my brother thinks the vitamins are crap. I'm not taking them." I'm like, "Well, hold on a second. Like that's not the issue. The issue is she cares about you and you can you want to you care about her. So how about we 
answer the real question, which is how to be healthy, uh, instead of getting into this pro-vitamin, anti-vitamin debate. And I, you know, I didn't handle it very well, but it made me really think about how I would handle it in the future. Um, because I think identifying, like digging deep about what are, what the, what is the point about these issues, I think is important. I think it helps us, uh, build relationships and bring people together to have an actual discussion, uh, instead of forcing us back into our... Well, the, the whole thing there is there's vitamins and vegetables. Eat more vegetables. Yeah. Exactly. yeah if, if you're going to make the whole natural argument, well, get your vitamins naturally. Eat a vegetable. I know. Yes. There's one having, lesson. Having said that, um, I have been told that taking vitamin D, because we don't get that much exposure to sunlight here in Canada, is... Um, I mean, that seems to be conventional. Yeah. Oh, yeah there's always... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and don't a, overdose yeah. on it. Yeah. Don't yeah. eat yeah. 10 pills a day. Yeah. Follow the recommendation. Talk Not only that, I actually did have to have this argument because, uh, well, my ex squat with this girl who wanted me to go and take these very expensive $50 a month vitamins for my kids because the naturopath there had come up with vitamins specifically for them. And that was my argument. They eat vegetables until you get me a doctor's note saying they are deficient in these vitamins. I'm not buying them. Yeah, exactly. It yeah. worked. Shut her up. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah, those kinds of debates. I mean, these are things we have. These are the questions we have. No, but she, I got her off my damn case, and she didn't call me a. a what did she call me? She called me a, a, a some monster of a mom or something. Oh, God, that's horrible. I'm so sorry. Yeah, no kidding. I'm sorry. That's not going to get me to buy your vitamins from uh, Nutters. Yeah. Yeah. Take a lesson here. Have some empathy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Nightmare of a mom. That's what she called me. It's huh. terrible. Oh, you just gave yourself the new nickname. (laughs) Don't you dare. You better stick with that other one. I mean, wasn't it a homeopath? Nightmare of a mom from now on. Yeah. (laughs) Um, That was a custody battle that cost me $8,000. Please don't say that. Well, that's worth the money, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It will be a badge of honor for you. You know our audience will believe it. I I don't overdose my children on vitamins, so I'm a nightmare of a mom. (laughs) Sure, I'll own that. My goodness. (laughs) Well, Michael, but uh, I think we're going to close it. We're we're for over an hour and 15, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's evolving here now, too. (laughs) And, yeah. Thank you for sticking with us. Yeah, thanks for for being on uh, The Legion of Reason, and uh, uh, we'll hopefully uh, hope to see you on Saturday. Uh, Yes, indeed, and thanks for having me, guys. I really, this this is a really enjoyable conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Legion of Reason, coming to you from Calgary, Canada. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please consider reviewing us on iTunes. Music was provided by Dean Morrison and Graham Hill and used with permission.